Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. I'm going to start with a a bit of a confession this morning, and that is that I find myself this morning waking feeling a little flat. And the reason is that 20 years ago, I was senior pastor in Alice Springs, and we had a congregation of about 400, and about a third of those were Americans. And we woke to Sunday morning and had to pivot amazingly (laughs) uh, to change a service completely to acknowledge the events that were unfolding in New York and other places in the States. And I, you know, I didn't even give it a thought. And then this morning I just find myself flat. It's interesting, isn't it, how we carry things in life and we can be uh, soldiering on and everything's fine Uh, and then one little thing can trip us up and change our countenance and change our mood. That's part of being human, folks. I don't think any of us are exempt from it. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that the, uh, this is a burden that we carry now more than ever because we have this thing called a pandemic that sort of hangs over us. And even though we enjoy such great freedoms, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, you... you You read and you hear and you wonder, when? (laughs) When's our turn? When won't we be able to do like this? But you know, it's a great opportunity also to live in the moment. To remember that every moment is a gift from God. Every day is a gift from God. Every mercy is a new mercy. Every provision is a new provision. Every expression of his love and grace is new. And to enjoy it, to note it. And what better time in our world than now to remember to stop and smell the roses. Slow down a bit. Give attention to the things that matter. Appreciate the goodness of God in our world. Well, having got that off my chest, uh, we return today to the next in our series through the book of 1 Samuel. We've heard that it is not just an historic account, it's not just an historic narrative, it is preached history. It is history that is told with a purpose. It is not linear history like going to a history book and reading all the dates in chronological order and all the events in chronological order and every detail. That's a very late Western, uh, Greco-Western um, way of telling history. What we have in Samuel is no less history, but it is preached history because it speaks of the work of God with his people. 
And it embeds the work of God and his people in history and in time and space. So let's go back over the story so far. You see, God had been forming uh, for himself a people called the Israelites. And they had been in slavery and captivity in Egypt under the harsh rule of Pharaoh. And God had led them out of Egypt and formed them into a nation. They had seen the wonders of the open seas and crossing and then on dry land. And then of God wiping out the Egyptians that were chasing them. They've been given a promised land. They've crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. A place that God has given them as their place and their home. They were a confederation of tribes and Yahweh was their king. God raised up judges to pass his rulings on and his commandments and to remind the people to follow him. But this period degenerated over time into a free-for-all, into a cycle of rebellion and repentance. And the book of Judges concludes with the words, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so we come to the time of 1 Samuel. Eli is the high priest. And he is the, not the high priest, he is the current judge who acts as the high priest. And Samuel is born and he is dedicated to serve God. Eli is aged. And his sons are taking over the role, but they are corrupt. God pronounces judgment on Eli and on his family. Samuel hears the voice of God and responds. And then the Israelites take things into their own hands. And they march out against the Philistine antagonists, their neighbours. They even have the audacity, as we heard last week, to trot out the Ark of the Covenant as a talisman. That sacred box that contained the Ten Commandments and other uh, paraphernalia that reminded them of God's presence and kingship over them. That sacred box over which the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night rose. They trot out this sacred, sacred symbol of the presence of God as, a, as some kind of good luck token in a war. And the ark is captured and Israel is defeated. And at this point the judgment about Eli and his family comes to fruition and Eli is killed. The ark is returned, as we heard last week, to the Israelites after seven months because it was just too painful for the Philistines to hold it. And then there's a 20-year period. And 20 years later, the story picks up, and the Israelites uh, have come to a place of recognizing their plight, their, their tendency to wander from God. And Samuel steps up to the fore. And he calls the Israelites to repentance and to turn back to Yahweh. 
And Samuel is also instrumental in God's action at the time in defeating the Philistines. And he places a rock at the, uh, at the site of the victory. And he calls that rock Ebenezer. God's help. And he says, thus far the Lord has helped us. And we thank Ian for his message last week on that passage. And we pick up this historical narrative at this point in chapters 8 to 10. You see, Samuel is now old. And like Eli before him, he has got his sons doing the carrying some of the responsibilities and doing some of the work. But just like Eli's sons, they accept bribes and pervert justice and are corrupt. And so the elders start thinking about succession. Samuel's getting old. His sons aren't doing a great job. In fact, we don't really like his sons. So what are we going to do about the future? It's a good question. And they pay good attention to it. But Israel had been here before. They were here with Eli only a matter of decades before. And God provided. But this time, they seem to have forgotten. And they come with the demand that Samuel appoint a king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. And as the Israelites ask for a king, dear old Samuel feels a little rejected. I mean, after all, he served faithfully for decades. He'd even only just recently led them uh, in this vic uh, victory over the Philistines. Who wouldn't feel rejected? So he goes to God with this request from the elders. And God points out rather bluntly that it's not Samuel that's been rejected. The Israelites are actually rejecting God himself in making this request. And the Lord told Samuel... Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing it to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So here's this wake-up call for Samuel. It's a little bit like, like he goes to God feeling like, you know, what about me, God? You know, it, I've done all this good stuff and they're just turning the back on me. And God reframes it and says, it's not about you, Samuel. Because it's never about us. It's always about God. And Samuel communicates this response to the people. Warning them of the implications of a king. You see, kings have royal courts and royal families. And they have staff. And they have armies. And all the needs of the people of these people need funding. So people will be conscripted. Families will lose family members to the royal court. 
And of course, taxes will be raised and the people will know the burden. With kingship will come considerable burden. It's not all as rosy as the Israelites imagine it might be. And so Samuel conveys this to them. But they are a stubborn people and they say, No, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us out and go lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. So God gives them what they want. And you see Samuel's anointing of Saul as Israel's first king in chapters 9 and 10. So folks, it's important for us to recognize here that God is not abdicating his kingship over his people. As you read chapters 8 through 10, you will see that the signs of the fingerprints of God are all over it. God is still in control. He sets everything up. He even foretells how things will unfold in quite fine detail. Even down to who people will meet, when and what they will say. The account is a stark reminder to the Israelites, to Samuel and to this new king Saul that God is still in control. They will get their king. But he will not be a king like the other nations. Rather, he will be a king acting on behalf of and at the behest of the king of kings. That's the story. We look back at this story, this preached history, thousands of years after the event. It's very easy isn't it, as us, as observers, to look back and be critical about the Israelites. I mean, if I'd lived in that time, if I'd walked through that dry sea bed, if I had seen a pillar of fire at night come over the tent of meeting, and during the day when we were on the move that there would be a pillar of cloud that would lead us, if I had seen how the, the promised land had so generously been given to us and battles had been won, and if I had seen all that, I would never have turned from God. It's so easy to be critical, isn't it? But as soon as we start to think like this, we find ourselves looking in a mirror. After receiving his forgiveness and grace, how could we ever lose sight of his love for us? After experiencing the transforming power of the Spirit's work within our lives, how could we forget that he is always present with us? But we do. We do. We cool. We get lazy. We fail to pay attention. We get drawn to other things. In reality, we're not much different to the Israelites of thousands of years ago. You see, what the Israelites were dealing with is a wrestle of identity. This tension between being the people of God and being drawn into the norms of the world. Does that sound familiar? 
this tension of being followers of Jesus and being beneficiaries of the norms of the world. We want to be like others. We want a king like they have. We want to have what they have. The successful life, the material things, the comfort, the latest tech, the perfect health, the great image. We want all these things. Just like our fellow human beings, we want today to be like paradise. And we get disillusioned when it's not. And we cry out, where is our God? And so we put another king on the throne. Whether it is wealth, or whether it is education, or whether it's a fixed health system. There's always something else that we think is what we need. The wrestle of identity is a wrestle of who or what is preeminent in our lives. Where do our values come from? Where are our priorities? Where are our allegiances? In other words, to use the language of the Israelites, who or what will be our king? This struggle is not unique. Paul talks about this internal battle of two kingdoms when he wrote to the Roman church. In chapter 7, he writes these words, and I take great courage and hope from them. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I just can't carry it out. For I, do not deal, uh, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you re- Relate to Paul? (laughs) I sure can. It seems like the the, the, uh, longer we walk with Jesus, the longer we have a relationship with God, the more we realize how far short we fall from the ideal. Paul here points to the fact that finally in history, over a thousand years after Samuel, God gives his people what they asked for. He gives them the real king. Not a king like other nations. Not a fallible, burdensome king. Not a king with an extravagant court and a formidable armed force. Not a king who is unapproachable and imposes um, unsustainable taxes. 
but a king whose kingdom is like no other. A king who is more powerful than any other force in all of creation. A king who sets his rule in the very hearts, in the center of being of his people. God gives his people Jesus, the king like no other. And as a king like no other, it is hard to describe him. In Isaiah, we read these words. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. In Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he uses quite a contrary description. He says, being in very nature God... Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Servant, Nothing, Death, Suffering. Jesus is a mystery. He's a paradox. We'll never fully grasp him. But we don't need to. Because the moment you think you've got him, you've missed him. If you think you know all about him, you don't know squat. He is beyond our understanding. We don't need to know know about him. We need to know him. Have a relationship with him. Folks, this King Jesus is my King. He is the source of my life and my hope. And like millions around the world and across all of history, I try to honour him as my King. And I wonder today, do you know him? Do you know King Jesus? I can't describe him as eloquently as an African-American Baptist pastor could. Dr. Lockridge preached a 60-minute sermon. You're lucky I'm not imitating him today. In the 1970s, he preached this sermon and he finished with this description. Let's watch this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? 
My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen. Amen indeed. You can see why I didn't try. What a gift he has, that preacher. You see, there is no one before him, and there will be no one after him. You ask for a king, this is a king you cannot dethrone. And he's not going to resign or abdicate. His is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Jesus, King Jesus, do you know him? Let me pray. 
Father God, we come to you again humbled by the enormity and wonder of who you are. We come acknowledging before you that even in our best efforts, our honouring and serving of you is never faultless. It is always falling short. And yet, despite that, and maybe even because of that, you continue to be our God, calling us afresh to you, gracing us with your forgiveness, lavishing us with your love. And most of all, setting before us Jesus, your Son, the great King of creation, the head of the church, our King. We bow before you. We offer ourselves afresh to you. For there is no other like you. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through the hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.